And last week we went through chapters 3 and 4. I don't like to say we breezed through it, but I guess we kind of did. But I did want to actually rewind because there's a part of chapter 4 that I don't think, at least in my opinion, I expounded on enough. And I just want to make sure that I do that while going into chapter 5. And we're actually just going to go up to verse 10 in chapter 5 today. So, um, you know, it's easy for us when we read the Bible, we can always think that these books are separated in chapters and all that stuff, when in actuality they just kind of flow together, right? And, you know, we read it with our Western eyes and think we have to separate everything by chapter, but I'm going to tell you it's difficult to do that, especially with Scripture, because if I stop at a certain point, it really doesn't emphasize maybe what could be spoken about going on, and I don't want to keep you guys here for three hours unless you guys want that, because... I can do that. But I was starting to preach to my wife this last weekend. I think we were laying in bed Friday night, and I was just like excited, and I was talking to her about the Word, and God bless her, she listened for about three minutes and then told me to chill out. So um, I get to let this out with you guys, is there's a lot. I mean, and I know I said that every week as we're going through this, this book, um, there is a lot. And you get done preaching sermons, and anyone that's ever preached before, I know you walk away many times probably thinking, man, I left something on the table with that. Um, I know that that's going to take place and happen, um, but I, you know, Lord willing, am just going to do what, what he calls me to do and speak what he calls me to speak and just trust that he's going to do what it is that he does with his word. So in Hebrews chapter 4, though, I am going to back up to I'm starting at verse 11, which once again, last week we covered this, we read through it, but there are some parts here that I just want to make sure that I emphasize and um, break down, exposit for you guys, because I do think it's imperative. So, and once again, Jelaine, you already heard the three-point sermon this last weekend. Um, it, late at night. Late, it wasn't that late. It's like <laughs> 9.45. Oh, well. Anyways. Hebrews chapter 4, starting off at verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. So we spoke about last week about the word rest, really just carrying three different definitions and meanings, if you will, in context. The Sabbath rest, the rest meaning going into the land of Canaan, and then that eternal rest that we find with Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and how really those things in the Old Testament, the Sabbath day, the land of Canaan, those are really types and shadows of the rest that was to come for God's people, and that is that eternal rest. Um, with Jesus, but also knowing that Jesus being inside of us, the Lord of the Sabbath, we get to have that rest every day. Um, we went to Colossians and all that and talking about the Sabbath day and the arguments that can strive from that. We don't concern ourselves with that as Christians. Once again, we worship the Lord of the Sabbath who is in us, so we get to partake in that rest daily. Amen. So it says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. This word disobedience, once again, making reference to God's chosen people, the Israelites, their lack of faith, their lack of trust, um, their lack of unbelief was really just expressed through this um, disobedience that they portrayed. For the word of God, this is deep right here, and we're going to break this down. For the word of God is living and active. So once again, guys, you open up your Bibles throughout the year, right? You read a passage that you read last year, but man, something about that passage at this point in my life is speaking to me in a way that it didn't last year, right? God's Word remains the same, but it hits us in ways as we grow, as we mature, as we experience things in life. His Word hits us in ways to continue to edify and to grow us. It's alive. That's what that is meaning here. 
It's active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The author here is really trying to convey not so much that the Word of God will pierce just certain sections of the human, but that the Word of God will cut through the deepest, most part of who you are as a Christian. You want to have an idea of where you're at with the Lord? Open up the Word of God. You want to feel convicted? You want to feel comforted? Open up the Word of God. You want to have discernment over yourself? First and foremost, which is what we're called to do as Christians, open up the Word of God. We can have so many people out there think that they maybe are discerning or have a discerning spirit. I will sit there and say, show me a person that cares about being in the Word of God. And I'll also see a person that cares about having discernment in their own life. So often we can sit there and point the finger at other people. We can sit there and say things about how other people are living. But when we open up God's Word, our hearts are exposed, if you will. And that's what's going to go into here with what the author is trying to say. Guys, it's no, it's no secret that you guys have probably sat during sermons, right, where a pastor is giving a message, and you could swear, and I know I've made this joke to you before, that someone's significant other has probably been talking to me throughout the week, which has given me the title or the context for a sermon. When I'm preaching, I'm preaching about Jeremy. When I'm preaching, I'm preaching about Mariah, right? No, that's the Word of God piercing and dividing the innermost part of your being. Amen? Like, this is what this is really trying to speak about and say. And it goes on here in verse 13. Once again, we're connecting these scriptures. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. You want to know where you're at with the Lord. There's this sobering thought of knowing that when I open up his word and I start to unpack it and I start to dig for those diamonds that are present in there, that I am, I am completely exposed spiritually to God. He knows everything about what I'm thinking. He knows everything in my heart. I've made this, this point before. You guys do great maybe at pulling fast ones over on people, maybe even fast ones on yourself, but you can't pull a fast one on God. He knows where you're at. He knows where your heart's at in the midst of, of what you're going through in your life. So that thought needs to really bring us to this humble, sobering place in our life and our walk. Open up the Word of God. Study God's Word to properly understand and discern the things of your life, your heart, and your mind. Period. Can't get any more objective than that goes into, once again, we covered this last week, but I wanted once again to mesh this together. Verse 14, since then we have a great high priest. And I want you guys to remember the context of this book. The author here is speaking to Jewish Christians, Hebrew Christians. But there's a thought and maybe a possibility that they're also in the amongst of people that aren't believing Christians. They're Hebrew. They still know the law. They're still clinging to that about being, you know, circumcised and, and cleansing rites and all of that. This author is really trying to use that language of priesthood, Moses, angels, these things that would have a relevance to the Israelites. He's using that as a means of teaching to them that you know about priests, but we as Christians have a great high priest. It's sobering to know that our hearts and minds are exposed to God. 
But what a blessing and a beauty it is that we have a great high priest in Jesus Christ to intercede for us to a holy God. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Once again, that striving language that we've been talking about the last few weeks. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So once again, this emphasis of Jesus being this high priest, we spoke about the human nature of Christ and the divine nature of Christ. And this all goes back to what we've talked about in the past previous weeks about these contradicting beliefs and mindsets about could Jesus be God but be flesh? And there was a heresy going around that no, God could not possibly be flesh, that Jesus was just spirit. And how we've seen that flip-flopped in our times today. Jesus was just a really good dude, but he couldn't be God, right? We hear that a lot in uh, the secular world when it comes to Christ. So, I wanted to go back to that because now going into chapter 5, there's really going to be this expounding a little bit more on Jesus and the line of priesthood that he is coming from. And it's going to work us through as we go throughout this book, even talking about the, the, the doctrine of apostasy. Once you guys have heard the, the once saved, always saved, a lot of people you know, struggle with that. Scripture is going to break down what that truly means and how we have this blessed assurance as Christians. So, I'm going to take a sip of my water before we go into chapter 5. So, chapter 5 begins, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Now, it wasn't a secret, if you will, back in the Lord's day that you could actually purchase your way into the priesthood. Did you guys know that? Brent, Jason, if you wanted to, if you offered enough money, they would actually allow you to be a priest. This was just showing, once again, the perversion that started to take place and how it really morphed from something beautiful and holy in the Old Testament and how the corruption just really started to work its way in when we're looking at this writing right now. So it's almost like the author in speaking to this, this Hebrew audience is wanting to kind of maybe put that out there a little bit. Like, yeah, we know the priesthood is important, but in all honesty, when the heart of man gets involved, if you have enough money, anyone could technically be a priest. And this is something that I think that we should even hold on to and look at because, once again, he's going to speak about Jesus and the priesthood that he comes from or in the line that he comes from. So once again, in every, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. So once again, emphasizing that human element that's there that human element of weakness and temptation. But there's a difference between earthly priests and the great high priest of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ never had to atone for sin that he committed. 
because he knew no sin. The author here is letting us know, though, these earthly priests, they themselves even had to atone for their own sin. So there's that separation there that we have to look at. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Now, we've got to stop and realize here what the author is doing by mentioning Aaron. Aaron is the line of the priesthood. Right? So we have to step back and we have to look at the lineage here and the things that we're talking about. You have Abraham, you have Isaac, you have Jacob, and Jacob had a son by the name of Levi. Levi is where we get Levitical priesthood. Aaron and Moses are sons of Levi, the generation of Levi. When you read in Exodus 28, God tells Moses to tell Aaron to separate your people to, for priestly duties for the Israelites. So if you're a Jew and you're a Hebrew, you know when the name Aaron is spoken, you're thinking about what? Priests, the priesthood. Aaron was a priest because of his calling from God. Okay, that is what the author is wanting to stress. He goes on here in verse five. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him. Now here's the difference. God appointed Aaron and his people to priests. But listen what God says to Jesus in his appointing as great high priest. You are my son. Everyone's Bible should have a capital S in that one. We've gone through that the last few weeks about lowercase s, capital S. Everyone's Bible should have a capital S because it's speaking of preeminence. It's speaking of essence, right? It's a title. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, I'm not going to waste a lot of time today or use a lot of time in speaking about Melchizedek because guess what? Chapter 7, that's what that's going to be devoted to. But in regards to once again what he spoke about Aaron and the line of Aaron being that of priests, Jesus did not come from that line. He's making this separation known. He is a great high priest that does not come from that Levitical line. Jesus, we know, is from the line of Judah. He is making emphasis to this individual that we read about in Genesis 14 by the name of Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, the priest of the God Most High. We're going to unpack that more in chapter 7, but I want to stress that because, once again, that separation is being spoken about in this chapter. Okay? Now, this one going into this, this is something that you guys have heard me as a pastor speak a lot about this. And once again, this is why I'm stopping at verse 11 in chapter 5, because I think we're going to be here for a little bit today. You guys have heard me talk about a lot in regards to suffering, right? And one of the things, once again, I always say this to you guys, is I don't want you guys leaving here thinking, man, like Pastor Josh is all about suffering and woeful stuff and all that. That's just not being a Christian right? And I want you guys in this understanding of suffering to look at it in a way that maybe the world doesn't look at it. Just as we speak about the word obedience and submission, right? When I say these words, for some of you, 
It could charge something in you. It could trigger something in you. We don't like to think about obedience in a marriage. We don't like to think about submission in a marriage. I see women already smiling at me like they want to throw something. Like, this is, this is real. But once again, we are taking what we have learned in our world, in our experience, and we're imposing it onto what the Scriptures are saying, which is what we're not supposed to do. And this doctrine of suffering is imperative for us as Christians because it correlates with our growth in the faith and our obedience to Christ. You guys have heard me say that it's easy to be like Jesus Christ when everything's going good in your life. Amen or ouch? See people smiling right now, right? Your Christ-likeness is tested the most when you're in the midst of something extremely difficult in your life. Right? And many of us in here can say, I don't do the greatest during those times. If you're honest with yourself, you could say that. But our mindset and perspective when it comes to these tests and trials, right, Brandon, you brought it up a couple times this weekend. James 1, 2 through 3, consider it pure joy that when you go through trials of various kinds, we're going to go through that here. But Jesus right here, this, these verses 7 through 11, are going to paint a picture of suffering that we need to look at as Christians to go, okay, I understand why this doctrine is imperative for me to grasp, especially if I'm serious about growing with the Lord. Amen? So I want you guys to just follow along. We're going to unpack this here. Before, though, I read this, guess where I'm going to have you guys turn to? My wife is already somewhat familiar with this because I talked to her about it last night. We're going to go to 1 Peter. Chapter 2. Hmm? What was that? No. 1 Peter chapter 2. Brent and the men this last Thursday, we had a great discussion on praise and worship. Right? Great discussion about it. And it was beautiful because all the men that were present, what they were talking about with praise and worship... No one mentioned a time or a 20-minute time slot on Sundays when it came to praise and worship. Everything that was spoken about on Thursday was speaking about our life as a means of praise and worship to God. And the scriptures that were brought to the table by these men were amazing. You know what I mean? Like, they were beautiful. Our praise is this thankfulness to God that we let out, and our worship is a submission to God. And we give thankfulness to Him. Or our, our worship and our submission is based on our recognition of what He's done for us, which leads to our thankfulness to Him as well. But we have to make sure that we have this proper understanding of what worship is. And I am going to pick on a little bit about that time that we find here at church on Sundays. You guys heard my prayer before service today for you guys to listen to the message and the truths that are being conveyed through the song. Many times we go to church and we want to listen to music that makes us feel good. And I'm not saying that that's always a bad thing. I'm not. But what I want to do as a pastor to you, or a brother to you, is I want your hearts to be in a place to where first and foremost is what I'm listening to exalting God before the focus is making me feel good. How many of us in here can be guilty of that? I'll raise my hand with you. 
We want to feel something first with this experience before we have the discernment, there it goes again, reading and knowing God's word to know what we're hearing is even properly exalting God. That's why we're here today, guys. I mean, I made amazing muffins this morning with cottage cheese in it, but you guys didn't gather today. Some of you are like, there's cottage cheese in the muffins? A lot of you didn't come today because there's amazing food here. A lot of you didn't come because we have amazing coffee or an amazing praise and worship band. Beautiful red carpet. The most comfortable pews with heated or cooled seats, right? We don't have any of that here. And I'm not knocking places that do that. I don't know of pews that have that kind of technology. If they do, I don't want to know about it. But the emphasis of why we gather is for an audience of one. Who is that audience? Jesus. It's God. And when our mindset on worship is put in the proper place, you find yourself listening to even old crusty hymns and tears rolling down your face. Because the truths that are being conveyed and communicating through those old, crusty, horrible songs are beautiful. Because first and foremost, they're exalting my God before they're making me feel good. And guys, there's a danger when our emotions take over, our discernment level drops, right? I've said this before. Any of you guys that have gone grocery shopping hungry, Prime example, you're hungry, your emotions are taking over, you're throwing stuff in the cart that you know you shouldn't. If you've ever been in love before, I'm not knocking anyone in here, but if you have, the butterflies and the euphoria, right? Emotions are high, but discernment is what? Low. We can do that when we try to make church about an experience more so than a worship and an exaltation to God. Amen? So, 1 Peter here, chapter 2. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Right out the gate, right? Very convicting stuff. Like newborn infants, long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And once again, guys, Hebrews is even going to connect with this in regards to our salvation and coming to Christ, right? Losing our salvation, if you will. Hebrews is going to unpack that in the next few chapters. But listen to this, guys, because we're talking about priesthood and all that in Hebrews. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men. Who else was a living stone that we read about in the Bible? The cornerstone. Who else was rejected by men? There's a suffering component there that we get to participate in with Jesus Christ. You now are a living stone. You now get to be rejected by men. Lines with that considerate pure joy. But in the sight of God, chosen and precious, the world may see me as this, but to the one who matters most, he sees me as chosen and precious. Guys, our lives on this earth are spent trying to find identity on a horizontal platform, right? We go around trying to think what the world thinks about us and all that. The only way or the only place where your identity truly matters is found vertically, and that's through your Father in heaven. We go through relationships. 
We go through fads only to come up and go, well, that one didn't work. Feeling less and less precious, less and less valuable. Your Father in Heaven's chosen you and He deems you precious. So guess what? You're precious. A beautiful truth that we have to hold on to. As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones, Here's the fellowship language, are being built up as a spiritual house. You guys have heard me say we're like a house being built with bananas, oblong and bruised. We still come in here struggling with sin. We still come in here imperfect, but being perfected. And there's a way that we are perfected, which we're going to go into. To be a holy what? Priesthood. You guys could say that a little louder. This coincides with what we're just talking about in Hebrews. You're telling me as a Christian and as a, as a member of this body, a brother of this body, that I'm a part of a holy priesthood? You are. And listen to the truth that's even being conveyed here by Peter as well. Priests did what? They offered what? Sacrifices. Guess what you get to do as Christians? You get to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ I want to unpack that for you. My wife and I were talking about this last night. Once again, our emotions and our feelings towards Jesus Christ do not dictate His worthiness of worship. He is who He is, and He's done what He's done. That dictates His worthiness of worship, regardless of how we feel. But through what Jesus Christ did for you and I on the cross, not only is He worthy of our worship, but as my wife and I discussed last night, He's made us worthy to come to God to worship through Him. Think about that. So when we make church about something in regards to appeasing people's emotions and feelings, people coming into church that don't even know God, and we want it to be about an experience. What are we really doing? As what he says here, it's through Christ, our faith in Christ, that we're able to come to him worthy and offering spiritual sacrifices. Well, what's a spiritual sacrifice? First and foremost, our prayers. Our prayers are heard by God the Father through who? Jesus Christ. We're even told in Romans that our bodies are called to be what? Living sacrifices offered up to him as a means of worship. And it's no doubt here that even when you read in the beginning of chapter 2, we're called to put away what? Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. When we give those up, because here's the deal, I stand up here as a pastor, sinner saved by grace like you guys. How many of you in this room still struggle with those things? All hands should go up. God is allowing you to have a means, an object, a spiritual object that you can offer to Him in sacrifice. And you're only worthy to do that because of your faith in Jesus Christ. And how many of you in here use that opportunity or take that precious position that you have to God the Father to offer up such sacrifices? It's called repentance. Lord, I struggle with this. 
Struggled with it this morning. Messed up doing it walking into the building today. How many of you offer these things up to him? This is what the author is wanting to convey. So once again, when our understanding of worship goes to the biblical lens and foundation, it should change our perspective when we come here to church, even our want to come here to church. The gathering. But once again, it isn't just even about this time together on Sundays. It's even about our days throughout the week as well. We have an opportunity to offer spiritual sacrifices to God, worthy to approach Him through Jesus Christ every day of our lives. Why? He is worthy. He is worthy. Doesn't matter how we feel. Amen? So I wanted to stress that because when we go back now and we talk about this, this, this rub or this want of like suffering and an understanding of what's been done and what's taken place, in verses 7 through 11 back in Hebrews chapter 5, we are going to look at this anguish that is expressed. You guys are familiar with the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Jesus praying to the Lord, take this cup of wrath from me. If it be your will, right? I'll go through it. And what does God say to Jesus? We got to go through with this. He doesn't remove the cup. There's that human nature being expressed. Right? Right here in verse 7, he says, in the days of his flesh, which, if you guys catch, indirectly says that there were days where Jesus, being God, was not flesh. This is a statement of preeminence, existence, and eternity past. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with what? Loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence guys this is a prayer from Christ this is speaking about the the moments and the time where Christ was on the cross so we have the garden of gethsemane where he's saying lord take this cup from me take this wrath from me could not be your will we'll go through with this god says to him we got to go through with this we read about the suffering component here where Jesus is on the cross with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, here's this word again, he learned what? Obedience. Through what? He suffered. Let's try to connect that here. This isn't saying that there was a point in time in Jesus' life where he wasn't obedient. I want to make sure that we stress that. Okay, But in Jesus' human nature, okay, there was a time throughout his life where these temptations and these tests took place in his human nature that he's never experienced that he needed God to get through it. 
I'm horrible with math. I'm not good at it at all. I graduated high school with general math. I never did algebra. I don't know how my kids do it, Maverick and Mariah. I don't know how you guys do it. When there's letters introduced in math, I'm done. Like I don't recognize it or any of that. But I know that if I was to start doing algebra when Maverick, Mariah, Whitney, Wyatt, when any of them started to do algebra and they've never done it before, they're going to learn how to do it through their schooling. Jesus was brought to a place of obedience, trust in God through the tests and the suffering that he endured, those temptations that he went through. He had test one that would take place, temptation one, A plus, he did it. He submitted unto the Father. Test two would come, temptation number two, he did it, A plus, why? He submitted and trusted in the Father. That is why when we look in the book of James, you guys don't need to turn there because it's a quick verse. I'll go there real quick. Brandon, you've been talking about it all this, these last few days. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 3. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So when we go back to Hebrews chapter 5 and we read through this, you see in verse 9, and being made perfect, or that word means complete. He became the source or the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him or all who have faith and trust in him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So what we're reading here in this sense of suffering, that if my God, Jesus Christ, the one that knew no sin, had to go through suffering to be made complete for a place of obedience... Why in the world would I, a Christian, a fallen individual who knows all about sin, not have to go through suffering one bit? This contradicts a lot of doctrine that we hear about in the church today. That God's will on your life is to what? Prosper. Which there's truth to that, but let's be honest. Healthy, happy, whole, wealthy. I'm not asking you guys to go out there and look for suffering. I'm not. What I am saying and what Scripture promises is that if you are obedient to Christ, suffering will find you. Even if you don't know Christ because you live in a fallen world, guess what? Suffering will find you. So we find this human element here, though, with Jesus. Once again, I'm going to reverse back here to chapter 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him, who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Guys, we have to grasp, once again, what the author is trying to convey with this human element of Christ. The human element and the human nature of Christ goes to God while he's on the cross out of complete trust and reverence to him, crying out to him to save him from death. What does that mean? 
We know Jesus being fully man and fully God, all that. We understand, though, that if it was me that's had to be obedient like that, all the way up to the cross, to where I'm placed on the cross, experiencing torment and torture, me being a human, I would be crying out to God, Eloi, Eloi, my God, my God. Because I know in the flesh of me, I'm scared. In the flesh of me, I don't want to fail you, God, in what you've called for me to follow through with in the Garden of Gethsemane where I was sweating blood. I need you in this moment. The language is right there, church. With loud cries and tears to him. In his crying to God on the cross for your salvation who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. He was heard because of his faith and trust in God. In the midst of his human nature, guys, I want you to grasp this. As he's sitting there, he does not want death to swallow him up. He does not want to fail God in his human nature. He does not want his body to let God down. I know what you've called me to do. And I understand this calling. You have tested me in my life with these temptations. And I have passed those tests. And it's caused me to just have more and more faith and trust in you. Obedience. Now I'm here on the cross. I need you more now than ever. Because I don't want to let you down. I've gotten A pluses so far. My body is failing. That is why you hear that human nature of Christ cry out to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We spoke about this a couple weeks ago. In that moment, Jesus experiences what people in this world will experience when they die not knowing God, a separation from their Creator and Father in heaven. Could you imagine that torment that your Lord and Savior experienced in that moment? that feeling of separation from God. This is the language that's being spoken about. So if him who knows no sin goes through that on my behalf, am I really going to get worked up too much when I experience some trials and tribulations of various kinds that on this side of eternity don't last forever? And once again, I'm not saying this to you guys to stop and go, well, man, if I just lost a loved one or whatever as a Christian, right, I'm supposed to consider it pure joy and be happy and dance around. That's what Pastor Josh just said. No. What I want you to do is understand what God is doing in the midst of what you're going through. What I want you to do is understand that you have a Savior who's walking with you through this trial. What I want you to do is to stop and go, there's a perfecting taking place in me, an obedience that wouldn't have taken place any other way if I hadn't gone through this. So when you're dealing with difficult people, when you're dealing with difficult times, understand the means of grace that God has even given you in that, that you yourself get to participate in that suffering with Jesus Christ. So we have to grasp that. I'm going to go back to Psalm 119. I'm going to close with this. 
Brent told me he was reading out of the Psalms, and I said, which one? He said 119, so I had to hurry up and go. I didn't want him to think that I was copying him, but we're not doing the same verses here. Psalm 119, we're looking at verse 65. I will wait for you guys to turn there. So, Josh, you brought up suffering. You've talked about once again, it's doing a work in me, right? It's, it's, it's bringing me to this place of obedience. It's bringing me to this place of trust in the Lord, right? Because once again, as, as it's been known, being like Christ is easy when everything's good and going good. But man, is it hard when things aren't. Amen, right? This is how it is. An opportunity to offer up some spiritual sacrifices to God. What the psalmist is even sitting here saying, though, and guys, there's a bunch of it here throughout Scripture, but I'm just going to read one here. Psalm 119, 65 through 67 speaks about something else that suffering allows you and I to do, which everyone in here can say amen to this. Suffering also makes us pretty focused and intent with the who, what, and why in our life. Some of your dialogue with God may be angry in the midst of suffering. But guess what? It might be the most dialogue you've given him in a long time because life has been going so good. Prayers, man, taking out that time to pray to God and sacrificing that time is pretty hard to do when life's going good. We tend to forget about them. But man, he can use affliction and suffering as a means to just go, remember me? Oh, you got a complaint? I'm here to listen to it. At least we're in the same room together. At least you're giving me some attention. At least you're talking to me again. Right? It's the beauty of affliction. We tend to do our own thing when things are going great, but wait, wait, wait. Once again, affliction happens and something else takes place. In Psalm 119, 65 through 67, Jelaine, you want to read that? I will. Do good to your servant according to your word, Lord. Teach me knowledge and good judgment, for I trust your commands. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I obey your word. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I obey your word. How big and awesome of a God is that? I'm going to use your affliction and struggle to actually bring you back to me. I'm going to use your affliction and struggle to have you be obedient to me. And guys, here's the other truth of beauty, uh, truth and beauty of affliction and struggle as well is, and this is something that I speak personally of, struggle and affliction also, when the heart is positioned right to understand this doctrine, makes you appreciate those good days even all the much more. Do you ever think about that? You consider the loss of a loved one. You consider the struggles of life. You consider the anger that you're battling with. You consider the frustration of a job. You consider all these things going on. 
But when you bring those spiritual sacrifices to God and you trust and understand, I'm going through this to get me something, to draw me closer to Him, when those good days are there, you learn to dance in them all that much more. Guys, I don't take my life for granted one bit every day. And I don't stand up here to say that to you, to, to make you feel like bad because maybe you don't consider it. It annoys my wife to no end how hippie-ish I can be about my life. I can look at a bowl of cereal and put some kind of philosophical, theological meaning to it. Ask any one of my kids. Mowing the yard, preaching to trees. I'm not lying. Why? Affliction brings the senses to a place of gratitude that nothing else does. You lose a spouse. How much more do you think about that spouse when they're gone? Right? You lose a friend. You yourself are sick. How many you guys, when you deal with an illness in here and you're bedridden, right? Or you're going to the bathroom every four minutes or 30 seconds. I don't know how some of you are when you're sick. You think about those times when you weren't doing those things. And then when you start to feel better, man, it just feels good to be able to move around and not feel this and this and that, right? Affliction leads to gratitude. And when you stop and you park and realize what Christ did for you and what he bore for you on the cross and the affliction he went through for your sake, you should be compelled in gratitude and grace and love to live that out in your everyday life. Amen?